0: Good morning. Good morning. Great to see everybody here this morning. And I think the sun? Are we going to see the sun today? <laughs> is it, is it, June gloom is just like locked in on us, isn't it? It's been a lot of fun. Um, but it's great to see everybody here today this morning. Uh, I'm Jennifer Richmond. I'm the lifeboat pastor here at LMC. And it's great to be in big church with you all today. I'm usually down the hall. In Kids Church, which is a wonderful place to be, that I enjoy, of course, with the kiddos. Um, And uh, welcome to all of you uh, joining us online as well, including Pastor Joe and his family. Woohoo! Aren't they adorable? (laughs) So, uh, in case you didn't know, they are on a big road trip all the way to um, South America. They're gonna explore the South. No, they didn't do that. That'd be be hysterical. Um, No, they are um, going to the opposite direction. They're heading out to the East Coast and uh, seeing family and seeing friends. If you've been following their adventure on social media, you can tell they are having a wonderful time. And uh, we're happy for them to be out there. And I'm happy to be here uh, this morning in Big Church. So as we begin, I have a question for you. You ready? Here we go. What... I was just going to say, what is the Bible written in originally? Hebrew or Greek? (laughs) Um, What's the mission of the Bible? What's the mission? What's the point of every book? Or what does every book point us to? God loves us, right? It's true. There's hope in Jesus. True. Both true. And I think an essential and focused way to understand the Bible is simply We have a problem, and God has a solution. Amen? Can someone do me a favor? I left my water bottle down there, and as soon as I step up here, it just, like, it zaps all saliva. That's a pleasant thing to talk about Sunday mornings. (laughs) All right. You know, there's laws that God set into place that govern our physical universe, gravity, for example. There's spiritual laws also. And just like gravity can't be broken without consequence, God's spiritual laws also cannot be broken without consequence. Sin causes that separation, and that's part of God's spiritual law. And ultimately, sin will cause death. The solution that God provided is a solution to this consequence of that law. And that law needed to be paid. The consequence, our sin, needed to be forgiven. For the separation, To end. And here's how Paul explained it in Ephesians chapter 2. You, us, we, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you, us, we, who were once far away, have been brought near. And all God's people said, amen, by the blood of Christ. The solution would be provided in God's son, Jesus, who would come through God's family, a people that he called out from all the other nations. God made a covenant with Abraham that from his own descendants would be the ultimate deliverer who would save not only Abraham's descendants, but would save all of those who would be adopted into that family, God's plan would make right the problem. Well, there's an enemy of that plan, an adversary who's plotted against God to stop the plan, to destroy God's people. Satan is literally hell-bent on destroying the promise and taking down the promised one, Jesus. Now, we have the benefit of looking back through history We hold it in our hands, seeing God's plan unfolding in account after account from Eve to Noah, Abraham to Ruth, and even now in the account that we've been studying in Esther. And we left off last week in this series on another cliffhanger in this dramatic account, the close of chapter 7. Would you turn with me to Esther chapter 8? And uh, while you're getting there, I want to ask you this next question. Um, there's this interesting issue about this book, Esther, in the Bible. In fact, people have asked, how could it even be included in the Bible at all? And if you've been with us in this series, you probably already know about this issue that I'm referring to. What's missing, or rather, who is missing from the account of Esther? God, that's right. It's one of two books in the Bible that have no apparent mention of God. No mention of God, not one prayer No mention of the temple, no prophecies, no praises to God. He, like the meaning of Esther's Persian name, is hidden. Is God there? Of course, right? God will never leave us or forsake us. But he's not mentioned by name in the account. We'll come back next week. Um, We'll see the name of God actually is hidden in Esther. But for now, God may seem missing, but he is there. Isn't God amazing how even right now at the opening of this message, God's already prompting your heart? Because some of you are already feeling that nudge of God being missing in your own life. Like, oh, that's kind of how God feels to me sometimes. God's working. You know, we pray before we begin our services in the morning. We pray together. We worship together. We, We get ready for the service and we pray that God will work. And so we stand here and we sit here in confidence that God already has prepared your heart for this message. And even the point that I'm going to be making and bringing it together at the end may not even be the point that God's going to be speaking to you in your heart this morning. But we're trusting God. The God who might feel missing to some of you is working in your heart right now. I'm trusting him for that as well. Well, that name of Esther and his hiddenness is actually a fulfillment of a warning that God made. When God first called his family together and gave them a national identity, his people, he warned Moses, their leader, that this day of hiding would come. He said this in Deuteronomy, the end of Moses' life. He said, the Lord will drive you to a nation unknown to you or to your fathers. Then the Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. I will surely what? Hide my face in that day. Because of all the evil they have done, because they have turned to other gods. It's been a thousand years since that prophecy. And now the Jews have been in exile, first taken by the Babylonians, then the Persians. But the first king of Persia, Cyrus, had permitted, even financed the return of the Jews to Jerusalem in 539 AD. You can read about this in the book of Ezra. Now, you would think that Jews who have longed their return to their land, that they wouldn't wanted to be there. But most, actually 2 million, over 2 million, remain in exile, choosing to enjoy life outside of God's covenant, outside of his promise. God has a plan for his people, and that is to bless and to reward those who obey him live in covenant relationship with him and with his people, no matter how beautiful life can seem. If it's outside of his will, outside of his covenant, it's not going to truly ever be blessed. The account of Esther is a reminder to us of that issue. These people had all remained and were now descendants of those who had long ago had the opportunity to be home, but they remained where they should not have been. Did God work in their lives? Yes. Yes. Did they love? Did they enjoy their lives even as exiles? Went to work, played, started families, made community? Yeah, yeah. Should they have been there? No, they should not. You can find love and community even when you're not under God's perfect plan, but you cannot find true hope and blessing there. The rain, the Bible says, falls on the what? The just and the unjust. This is God's common grace. His call, however, remains. Obey be under his special grace. The account of Esther is so incredibly relatable. It might have happened up in a palace. That doesn't feel relatable. But the people remind us of ourselves. God's name may not appear, but we see him working. What do we know is true about God's word? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is What? breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for for correction, for training in righteousness. Esther is part of God's word. So the account of Esther is exactly that. And it has been used for over 3,000 years now to teach us and to to help us to see God, even, not that slide yet. (laughs) (laughs) Scary. Sorry, children. (laughs) Don't go there yet. Even when God appears to hide, he's there. The account of Esther opens with the king of Persia, Ahasuerus. His Greek name is Xerxes, and he ruled from India to Ethiopia. He's rash, he's prideful, he's a partying king, he has a violent temper. And a side note, slide now for my fellow history geeks. Uh, Xerxes was a legendary leader. Uh, his empire was ultimately conquered by none other than, does anyone know? Alexander the Great. Boom, wow, right there, front row. Extra bonus points in heaven, make note of that. Uh, Chapter 2 begins after these things, this is that infamous attack, the things, was this infamous battle of Thermopylae, when Xerxes and a quarter of a million of his men sack Athens, but then they're defeated by 300, hence the film, 300 men of Sparta, I don't think we're going to be showing that movie anytime soon, (laughs) at a movie night, but you're going to find it interesting to see, and a lot of books and movies have been written about that. So that's Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Haman, he's the delusional prime minister to Ahasuerus, a descendant of Abraham's grandson Esau. And Malachi, also a descendant of the evil king Agag. He's a selfish man. He's petty. He's filled with fury when Mordecai won't bow to him. And he plots and he manipulates in order to, next slide, Esther 3, destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. Not a good guy. Uh, Mordecai, he's this wise and he's a calm man. He raises Esther, his own cousin, and he guides her so that she ends up becoming the queen. He sits at the king's gate where he overhears and he's ultimately able to foil a plot to murder the king. He's also from that same line of Abraham, but through another line, another child, his grandson Jacob, and he is a descendant of King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. This sets up these arch enemies of God's family line of chosen people and the enemies of God's people represented in Mordecai and Haman. And then there's Esther, or her Persian name, or Hadassah, her Hebrew name. She's an orphan who's raised by her fatherly cousin Mordecai. She rises from all the rest of all the women in the land, a simple little Jewish girl, to become the queen of Persia. Mordecai gives her insight and encouragement and strength, even exhorts her when she hesitates to go before the king in Esther 4, it says, "'If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and, and who knows whether you have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this.'" And so Esther must count the cost, and she does. Will she stand true to the promise of her heritage as Hadassah, the Jew, or will she hold back and keep her identity hidden and stay quiet as Esther, the queen?' Esther, of course, does not stay quiet. She risks her life. She goes before the king to plead for herself and her people because in a year they will be slaughtered. And I love this artwork, this representation. She plans this banquet, invites the king and Haman. When the king offers to give her anything her heart could desire, she requests her own life and the life of her people to be spared. The king, stunned ask who could possibly be threatening his own queen and her people. And in a dramatic plot twist, Esther points to none other than Haman as the enemy of the Jews. And when Haman throws himself on Esther, oh, so delicious. Uh, the king has him impaled, so goes, on the very pole that Haman had intended for Mordecai. Haman's wife and his own wise men's words had come true from Esther chapter 6. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Why is that connection so obvious to them? But Haman so blind to the truth. Haman's wife, Haman's own friends see what Haman refuses to see. The Jews are special even in exile. They have the one true God on their side. The covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 12 is true. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Haman has cursed, has plotted against God's people, and he is in return cursed But his decree of death against the Jews remains in play. So chapter 7 wraps up with the king's eunuch suggesting that Haman be executed on the very pole in Hebrew a hayes that he had set up for Mordecai. And the king thinks this is a pretty good time saver. So Esther 7 reads, they hanged Haman on the hayes that he had prepared for Mordecai then the wrath of the king abated. And the account continues now in Esther chapter 8 verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai became the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Haman the Horrible is gone. He made his end on a Persian pole. (laughs) Uh, Esther gets his entire house, and Mordecai, who's been in sackcloth and ashes, mourning for God's people and their impending doom, has been elevated to Haman's place. The king gives him the ring off of Haman's hand before he's impaled, uh, gives Esther uh, Haman's house. And this was common practice in Persia. If you're put to death for treason... Your property gets turned over to the government, but here Ahasuerus turns Haman's estate over to Esther and then she gives it to Mordecai. Mordecai and Esther are miraculously elevated by the God who, as Hannah said in First Samuel chapter two, makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the aship to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Who puts all kings on every throne, God, who lowers all, who shake their fist at heaven, demand, or just simply even justify their own way. God. Haman's dead. And if this was a movie, maybe there'd be a slow pause and the uplifting music as the camera turns and begins to zoom in on a ticking time bomb still in the background because it's not over and you'd think we'd have this big party and call it a big win but there is a big problem that can't be fixed with the death of an evil man. The issue looms. The adversary is gone but his death decree remains so Esther cannot rest until this is made right. What can she do but throw herself at the mercy of the king? In verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite and the plot that he devised against the Jews. Esther has grown in her fearless faith. Remember before she had to be urged by Mordecai to even act and all she could do was invite him to a feast and even then she kind of wimped out that very first feast and she couldn't ask him what she needed to do but God worked that out perfectly because it gives Haman a chance to whine to his wife and complain and that's when he built the infamous gallows. But now now, this Esther, this Hadassah, our woman, she's entered the throne room boldly. She weeps. She pleads with the king for a solution. And what does the king do? He, verse 4, held out this golden scepter to Esther. And what does Esther do? Listen to her tone. She said, if it please the king, if I have found favor in your sight, if the thing seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes. So deferential so humbled, so urgent, and yet reliant on his mercy, and so unaware to some degree of his own love for her, she says, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Verse 6, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred This is why the story is not resolved yet. The death decree has gone out. The problem exists even if it may seem to the rest that all is well. The gospel principle for us is back again to the reality of God's law. It cannot be changed. It stands, like God, immutable, unchangeable. People might live like death is not looming for them, but it is there. God's decrees cannot be broken. God's holiness cannot be approached by sinful people. And so many people bank on their personally contrived view of the nature of God that somehow when they die, it's God's mercy and his love that'll get them in. That their own sense of, of goodness, which is usually some degree of, I'm not worse than Hitler, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm not that bad, or in this case, Haman. So, of course, god to let me in. I mean, come on, right? But this approach fails to appreciate the reality That this is God's world and it's his laws that must be obeyed. God's word says we are by sinful, by nature, what? Sinful, right? And no amount of personal good deeds can rewrite that law. It's the consequence of that law that must be addressed. God is merciful, yes. God loves us, of course, thank God. But he's also just, he's also righteous, and he cannot break his own law. Esther is now at the feet of the king begging for the law to be revoked but there is a problem no amount of love and mercy and preference from the king can solve verse 7 King Ahasuerus The king's words are really strong here. It's emphatic. He says, And you, you write another decree. He speaks to the two Jews representing the line from Abraham's blessed family. You, you rewrite it. He says this to emphasize. Not only does he want Esther and Mordecai to write the new law, but he doesn't want anyone else involved in writing it. Mordecai has the signet ring and the permission to act. Esther's idea is that the king undo Haman's death decree. But that cannot be done. The decree is irrevocable. The king and the ruler of the greatest empire in the world cannot cancel death. This is the bad news. The only solution is for another law to counteract the first. In nine months, the Jews will be Killed, slaughtered, annihilated, right? Destroyed. They're scattered amongst the Persian Empire. The world is word has already gone out. They're going to be killed because of the law of death. God's people are doomed whether or not they've even heard the law. The kingdom was over 2 million square miles at this time in Persia. Greatest point of its empire. It didn't matter. Even if they hadn't heard that law, they're going to die. Unless authorized by the king... The once secret Jews, Esther and Mordecai, are now empowered to make change. There is hope. And they call on the king's scribes. And, next verse, an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, which, by an interesting coincidence, is the exact number of years that Sarah, the wife of Abraham, lived, we'll talk about that next week, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring, and then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred by the royal stud. Way more authority than that first edict went out with, way more pomp circumstance So what could they decree? Next slide. That the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, destroy and kill, annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. The new plan is that the Jews, men and women, young and old, could defend themselves. Not go on a rampage, not start it up, but to be free to defend. Why couldn't they have just done this before, I mean, right? Well, they couldn't form their own militia. They didn't have permission to gather and to train. But this new law allowed for them to do that. What? To gather, defend their lives. They would now be equipped to defeat their enemies. This had the effect of completely reversing Haman's decree. Look back at chapter 3 and compare the wording. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, 13th day, 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of what was written was to be used as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all people so the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So The couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out, hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. What a gift. What a great reversal. This gave the Jews a legal right to defend, to fight back, even plunder their enemies. The king was essentially allowing for a civil war, a battle-ready plan for the people of God, permitting them the time now that they needed to become equipped and for the word to spread that the Jews, God's people, were empowered by the king's new law. That's good news. And they were really happy about it. Read what happens as the messengers are dispatched and the, and the word begins to spread from Susa in verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country (laughs) declared themselves Jews. (laughs) Hey, I want to be on their side now. (laughs) for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The Jews are glad, really glad, and the Gentiles around them are converting. Haman had set out to annihilate the Jews, and instead there are more Jews than ever. Woo! (laughs) The king's new law goes out, and what happens everywhere it's heard? A reversal. Reversal of what happened when Haman's law went out. In chapter 3, when Haman's decree went out, the people were thrown into confusion. Not so with this new decree. Confusion is replaced by relief, And partying, the book of Esther may not directly mention God, but it clearly reveals God at work. His name's not written explicitly in the book, but his fingers, as we say, are all over it. The coincidences, the amazing reversals, the poetic justice that led to the deliverance of the Jews in Persia all proclaim the presence of God and the good news. This is good news for us today. God makes a way. If the plot of Haman, the adversary, had succeeded, you see, the people of God, the hope of Israel, the plan to bring salvation, to right the wrong of sin, would have ended. Jesus would not have been born. God's plan to redeem his people would never have happened God has always made a way through his people. That's where salvation was planned to come. What did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 14? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for what? Salvation is from the Jews. And what did Jesus say next? But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. You know, God may appear to be hidden, but is he working? Yeah, he is. (laughs) He's working in your heart right now. He's working in this room right now. He's working as you leave. God is seeking people to worship him. I was at a gas station up in Northern California recently And uh, what could be more mundane than that? (laughs) A busy station, 10 or 15 pumps. It was a big one. And uh, travelers are going in and out of the mini-mart. Truckers are stopping through. The noise of the highway was still in my ears. The traffic just humming along. But as I got out of the car and turned to reach for the pump, this is what I saw at a gas station. (laughs) The sky behind me, stunning, stunning in a show of greatness and reminding me the glory of God. The sun had disappeared below the horizon, but it left this rose and orange and pink and red beauty on the sky in the clouds. The sun was no longer seen, but the echo of its glory is. And God, too, is at work beyond our visible horizon, and the visible effects are glorious. In my routine moment, God was making his presence known, his glory echoing in my heart. Esther shows how the king, his empire, and even his sleepless nights are instruments of God. Her orphan status as a Jewish exile, her cousin's timely placement at the gate, even her God-given physical beauty were all part of God's plan. People and circumstances, even lives, situations of those not living where they're supposed to be, ultimately reveal to us the mercy of God. And his big, big plan to save us in spite of us. Esther reminds us of the truth of God, his law, his holiness, the sin that deserves nothing but death. But God's new covenant, the law of grace, allows for the first law to be fulfilled and for us to receive mercy. How? At the cross. For the gospel, the good news, the new covenant law to be true, Satan must be overpowered and that Happened. Sin, the power of death, was overthrown. God's people have victory as soon as the law was fulfilled. Like the Jews in Persia, they were already victorious. The battle was already theirs, even if they hadn't heard the decree. They had to arm themselves. In Esther, the death decree and the life decree both come down from the same authority. The signet ring sealed both. One in the hand of an evil adversary to kill and to destroy and the other by the hand of a wise and compassionate advocate to give life, and life abundantly, really. Just as Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, could not simply wipe off the first law, God, the righteous king of the universe, cannot just wipe away the decree of death revealed in the Garden of Eden. But God, but God, he can, and he has issued a new law. And that's the greatest news. Listen, listen. If you're still living in sin, if you're still away from God, or if you're holding strong to your own will, your own ways, you can come today and you can know what this says here next. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The account of Esther points us as every book of the Bible does to Jesus. The Old Testament contains the shadows and the echoes of the good news so that when it came, we would hear and we would see and consider, hey, This rings true to what I know in my heart already. God has written his law in our heart. He's given us ears to hear and hearts to receive him. And we must come today then not with our own ideas, not with our own plans, but we think should happen, but rather in humility before God, the king of the universe, and what he has made happen. Remember where we began? We were, like the Jews of Esther and Mordecai's day, next slide, without hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been what? Brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That God made a way for you and me to be saved and not only save but redeem us, reversing our destiny of darkness and mourning and shame and lavishing on us his light and gladness and joy and honor. Isn't that what we're all looking for? Light in a dark world, gladness even when we're hurting, joy to fill our souls when things feel so painful, honor to replace shame and condemnation as we rejoice in being free from the law of sin and death. Is Esther a beautiful rags to riches story? (laughs) Like a Bible story version of Cinderella where good people win over the bad guys? It is if we see it as a moral tale and look to Esther and Mordecai for inspiration to live a better life, a braver life, We can be like Esther or Mordecai if we just stand up to the Hamans of the world. Is that the point? What's the point of the Bible? What's the reason we even gather under the name of Jesus here on Sunday? It's so much more than living a moral life and being a good person, picking the Jesus side of history and standing up to the bad guys. Esther ultimately points us to the reality that we're all under a curse of law of death unless we have the law of life. It's at the cross of Christ where He defeated death, paid the price for our sins, that we come and we remember the way God worked out clearly and behind the scenes for me, for you, for all of us. The ultimate cost to give us what we are powerless to do on our own, bound by law. And as we take time to remember that moment in our worship and our communion, you can sing and you can pray right where you are, or you can come forward if you'd like to, and I'll pray with you. Let's go ahead and prepare our hearts in prayer for communion, for the cup and the bread that remind us of the body and the blood of Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love, for your your light, for your life, for the glory that replaces the shame that we would be. God, make us aware of our shame, make us aware of our condemnation, So that we can appreciate and love you all the more, so we don't remain in ignorance, holding on to our own ideas of how things should be, but that we would be humble and we would submit and we would be thankful and grateful over and over and over again and continue to sing and proclaim your greatness. Thank you, God, that you are good, you are loving, you are kind, you are merciful. And we sing to you and we worship you and we remember your body and your blood that you were broken and given for us so that we could be in communion with you. And we thank you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.